Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Stephen Fernside about the medical management of osteoarthritis in small animals. Dr. Fernside graduated from the University of Sydney with first-class honours in 1995. After working in rural practice for a few years, he completed a surgical internship at the Northern Sydney Veterinary Specialist Centre, followed by a small animal surgery residency and specialist training program with the now Queensland Veterinary Specialists. On completion of his training, Steve was appointed as the head of the small animal department at the University of Sydney Teaching Hospital at Camden. And in 2004, he was awarded his fellowship in small animal surgery from the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists. He is the first and currently only Australian practicing veterinary specialist to become a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation in the canine field. Steve now works at the Small Animals Specialist Hospital in Sydney. His specialty areas include surgical diseases of the spine, wound management, advanced orthopaedics, neurosurgical patient rehab and management of musculoskeletal injuries in sporting and working dogs. Hello, Stephen, and welcome Good to morning, the Pure Sarah. Animal Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know that um, you're an orthopaedic surgeon who's incredibly busy and in high demand, and you've just walked out of a surgery literally to join us on the podcast. I feel incredibly grateful and privileged. Sarah, <laughs> um, it's a pleasure. I always like to talk about osteoarthritis. Oh, so. good. Well, so do I. It's a, um, a favourite topic of um, us of pure animals. So I'm really excited. Um, you're the very first um, guest that we've had on the show to talk about arthritis. So you can you can absolutely take the stage and go wild with it if you want. Um, so be- <laughs> Before we jump into arthritis, um, I just thought I'd really like to sort of introduce uh, our guests to the listeners um, from your sort of point of view of your background and um, how you became to actually be a vet and and also how you became to be a surgeon and where, you know, the story of how you've ended up where you are today. So it'd be great if you could share with us. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, look, I am a bit of a tragic. I've wanted to be a vet ever since I was a little boy. Yeah. And uh, sadly, my well, sadly or otherwise, my parents um, were big fans of that old classic TV show, All Creatures Great and Small. Oh. When I was a little kid, <laughs> so I was I. It, it was on the same time as the football, and I oh. used to hate being put through it. But then as time went on, I, they kind of wore me down and I started yeah. to appreciate it. And, yeah. and I grew up on a, a small sort of uh, rural property on the outskirts of Sydney. I, I had a multitude of collection of animals ever since I was a small child and fascinated with them and also with wildlife and things. So, mm. look, it was a natural transition. I come from a medical family. Um, I wasn't interested in treating people because they're not as interesting as animals. So <laughs> um, I enjoy uh, the world of the animal. I, I, li- I, I like to think I live in two worlds. I live in the human world, but I also live in the animal world for, yeah. for much of my life. So as, as you would know, you, you, it's it's not really a, 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 a career so much as a vocation. Mm. And, uh, 
you do it because you're very passionate about it and passionate about treating animals. So that's 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 my background. Mm. The 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 interesting thing about treating animals is that usually when you treat pet animals, at least or work farm animals as well, they always come with a human attached. And yes. and, uh, the humans and you don't get taught that at uni, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you never get taught that. And, and the humans are often the more difficult thing to manage. Yeah, uh, the animal the animal is quite manageable. The human necessarily isn't always manageable, but. My career took me um, from rural practice in, in the central west of New South Wales, which I loved and um, still love, um, and to the big smoke where I studied, a, uh, especially in, in small animal surgery, and then subsequently I've gone on to kind of subspecialise, but also to have an interest in orthopaedics, mm-hmm. joint surgery, and also in, in, in surgery of the spine. Right. And wow. uh, that's kind of morphed into a, a, a bigger world of, of, all right, well, if you can do an operation on a dog's leg or a spine, what do you do with them afterwards and how do you rehabilitate them mm. back to normal? And that's kind of a, a very big untapped world of veterinary medicine, I feel. And, and about the same time as I was thinking about that, um, uh, talking to colleagues both here and internationally about it, uh, this fantastic new college in the U.S. came about called the American College of Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation, which is right. yep. a really interesting new area of veterinary medicine in horses, particularly and dogs. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I became a diplomat of that in 2017, um, and uh, which is a bit of a, a mid-career kind of uh, transition, which yeah. I hadn't anticipated doing more board exams, but I decided that that was uh, something that was really I was really passionate about. So. I became a diplomat at college, and that's um, helped me um, uh, connect with veterinarians all around the world who are interested in in rehabilitation of animals and and in sports medicine, and and obviously osteoarthritis being a big part of that, yep. uh, managing it. And so I'm a surgeon first and foremost. I, I like to fix broken things, and then once I put them back together, I like to rehabilitate them. So in a simplistic way, that's what I do. Um, nice. And uh, it gets a little more complex than that at times, but in, in you know, in a simple world, that's 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 how it works. Yeah, but, that's um, quite unique. Really, yeah, it's a really interesting place to be, and fantastic working with animals and their owners um, to see how much they can improve. I mean, for the example, this morning, this little dog came in, mm. completely paralysed in his back legs. You know, couldn't walk at all. All of a sudden. And that dog, we have every every anticipation it will return to normal function and be able to and, and be able to live a normal life. It's only six years old, and that dog will go from being completely paralysed and totally dysfunctional to um, fully functional, hopefully within a few weeks. Wow. And that process is not just about me operating on the dog's spine and, and and removing the ruptured disc, but also about how we care for it afterwards and how we rehabilitate it and how we and enable that dog to walk again. And that's as important a story as as uh, treating its spinal cord. And so were you, um, in that particular case, um, as an example of, of you know, other cases, will you then yeah. see that dog all the way through its rehab? Um, because I know in my experience when I was in practice, when we had um, roaming surgeons come in, oh, they would often make a rehab plan, um, yeah. and but they wouldn't see the patient again. They yeah, would, they would so see the x-rays but yeah that was it yeah i do both um so i start with the the surgery and then i have a rehab team here at sash okay um we have a a fully integrated rehabilitation service so 
Um, and I direct that service along with um, some physiotherapists, animal rehabilitation therapists who are who are nurses who train in animal rehabilitation therapy. Mm-hmm. Or we work with animal physiotherapists. Um, I work with a very talented veterinarian called Dr. Naomi Boyd, and she's a uh, a veterinarian as well as a physiotherapist. Um, yep. And and she uses her talents to help rehabilitate. So we set up. Uh, program for these patients, and this is important for osteoarthritis as well, because osteoarthritis mm. is a lifelong disease. Mm. So it's about managing them, about rehabilitating them, improving their strength, improving their proprioception, um, and their ability to walk and function as a as a normal happy animal. Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, we start that process uh, re- pretty much from day one, and it it all encompasses managing the pain uh, associated with the injury or the surgery, and then. Once the once we control the pain, then to start facilitating how we re- rehabilitate that animal's joints and muscles and 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 things to get them back to walking as normally as possible, as quickly as possible. And it's amazing the difference that it makes. Yeah, um, of course. So yeah, as you say, it, it, traditionally in veterinary medicine, we've had just a very basic rehab plan, um, but now we're far more sophisticated. We borrow on on what we know from human medicine mm. and what we learn from human medicine, it's incredibly talented human professionals in the rehabilitation sphere. And so we uh, we learn from them and we obviously have to modify that significantly for animals because we can't communicate with them and we can't, um, and they're on four legs rather than two. Yes. So there are differences, but yep. the principles are similar. Um, and so we we uh, condition the animal. We get the animal used to being having rehabilitation therapy, and they actually enjoy it because it makes them feel better. And first and foremost, that's the most important thing. So um, it's uh, it certainly is a process. Starts day one, and then it goes until the animal is completely completely functional, as functional as it can be, anyway. And roughly, what sort of time frame? I know it would differ depending on what surgery they'd had. But say for your yeah. spinal patient this morning, um, are you looking at sort of a couple of months or longer? Yeah. Total, look, it varies enormously. Um, and you get dogs that are still having needing work at sort of six months postoperatively. Mm-hmm. I usually give people a time frame of I like to see them returning to within a normal frame of, of what their life um, was previously by sort of two to three months. Yeah. Uh, and that may not be, it may not be completely normal at that stage, but I like them to be adequately functional, at least functional in in terms of that they, they're pain free and that they're able to um, they're able to walk unassisted, do the things like going to the toilet, all those sorts of things within sort of two to three months. I like mm. them, if possible, walking within a month and then fully rehabilitated by sort of three months. But it can take a lot longer than that. Um, some dogs are they walk out of hospital in two or three days. Yeah, um, right. and other dogs it takes them significantly longer than that. So it is very variable and it's difficult to predict which dogs are are going to do um, going to go quickly, and which ones are going to go slowly? Yeah, you just have to treat it, treat every individual, and and uh, make sure they have an individualised program, and that, that they're comfortable as things that the owners can can achieve um, at home, and that they can be involved with, um, and and putting in as much or as little as 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 the owners can afford to bring them back to us to to get upgrades and and to help. Um, so we can do it on site here as well. Great. And you mentioned that you are um, one of the surgeons at SASH, the Small Animal yeah. Specialist Hospital in Sydney, and you're also a director of this hospital, I believe. That's um, right. Obviously, you have sort of said some of the cases that you, that you um, often see, but what's your absolute favourite case to see um, when you're doing surgery at the hospital? Oh, look, I have a lot of favourite cases, um, and it's kind of more of an individual thing. Um, 
you know, you get some you get some really fantastic patients, you get some fantastic owners. Uh, there's nothing better than seeing a paralysed dog walk again quickly. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a great satisfaction in that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I, I love doing is fixing fractures, complex fractures, dogs yeah. that are traumatised, um, and that can be a real challenge. Yeah. And uh, so I enjoy doing that. Uh, and I enjoy doing joint surgery. So I do a lot of joint surgery. I do joint replacement th- joint replacement surgeries. We do mm. a lot of reconstructive surgeries. And that is very satisfying as well. You know, again, a dog that's been limping for 12 months and, and, and really not fully functional, not able to live its normal life. And within a few months, we can get them back to, to pretty normal levels of activity. So that's very satisfying. Yeah. Um, so look, there's lots of different enjoyable parts. Every day is different, as you know, you know, Sarah, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's never a dull day in veterinary medicine. So mm-hmm. um, a huge variety is great. I love doing reconstructive surgery as well. Um, so we do quite a lot of cancer surgery here at the hospital and, and uh, doing some of the big reconstructions of that is really interesting stuff too. So, yeah, that's the sort of thing I love. Um, well, I take my hat off to you. <laughs> You're obviously very passionate and very skilled at your at your job. So the um, Sydney Animal Specialist Hospital is, um, is really lucky to have you and all your Thank clients you. as well. Um, so moving on to arthritis, you, you must yeah. sort of see this associated with um, a lot of these joint surgeries um, and a lot of your cases in practice. What are the sort of the more, the, you know, the more common presentations of cases with arthritis that you tend to treat and manage. Yeah, and so arthritis. Yeah, arthritis. There is a really interesting topic because, and certainly as a surgeon, it, it's kind of something that I fell into a little bit because I do so much joint surgery mm-hmm. and because I see so many dogs with joint injury and joint trauma and 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 things. It, it's it's kind of that evil that lurks in the background. It's there everywhere and. The more dogs you see with with uh, with lameness and with pain and things, the more you identify it, and it's it's kind of something I treat every day. Yeah, it's it's it, it, whatever animal I see for joint surgery, I'm going to have a discussion with the owners about treating osteoarthritis because no matter how good a surgeon I think I am, no matter how much better I'm going to make the joint of this dog, um, inevitably every one of my patients and I say this unashamedly, every one of my patients will get osteoarthritis. Mm. It's a question of degrees and it's a question of how we manage that. And there's there's no way we can insult a joint by operating on it or or reconstructing it or doing anything to a joint without instigating a degree of osteoarthritis. So there wouldn't be a conversation I have with a client um, about joint surgery that doesn't include how we're going to manage this dog for the rest of its life with mm. osteoarthritis because, yeah. unfortunately, Osteoarthritis is an evil of the joint that um, will be with us for a long time yet. And and as I said, this is a lifelong condition. So we don't have a cure for osteoarthritis. We don't have a magical silver bullet that we can do, um, that you can use to treat osteoarthritis, apart from, apart from, I guess, replacing the joint. So yeah. when osteoarthritis becomes so bad, then we can replace a joint in the case of the hip or the knee or um, uh, in the future, we'll be hopefully getting a, an elbow replacement. Oh, right. Okay. Um, not too far away, um, and maybe ankle as well. So there's, wow. there's, there's, there's certainly the hip replacements that we do um, on the whole very successfully. It's a, it's a difficult surgery, but generally a, a very successful one, um, with a few exceptions. Um, but uh, it is generally the, the joint we can replace. The best I mm-hmm. feel in the dog, the knee. We have a reasonably good knee replacement um, technique and 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 uh, kit for. Uh, we have we're moving towards elbow and hock 
Um, but certainly for the other joints, the shoulder, um, for the carpus, for, for the smaller joints, uh, we don't really have a replacement for those joints. Mm. Um, and to some degree, you know, the, the knee, the elbow, you know, they're not uh, difficult to often replace those joints as well. So particularly the elbow. I think the elbow is one joint that is really problematic in the dog mm. and and that certainly is a source of, of, of debilitation for a lot of patients. So joint replacement is certainly a good option for many dogs. If, for, for example, a hip, if you have a dog with a very, very sore hip from hip dysplasia or, or hip trauma, then replacement is certainly a, a very viable option for that. And I'd always go to that as a gold standard for, yep. for, uh, for, for joint therapy. However, <laughs> there's many dogs that don't need a hip replacement. Mm. There's many dogs that don't need a joint replacement and can be adequately managed without, without having to resort to surgery. So they're the dogs that I spend a lot of time with and, um, and I think we can do a lot for those dogs without needing to go to surgery in every case. So um, that's where we aim to be. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's a lovely segue into, um, you know, about your approach to medically managing these cases with, um, with dogs with arthritis. Are you able to give us a rundown of, you know, your holistic approach to managing arthritis in dogs that might not be a candidate for surgery? Yeah, sure. So I think there's kind of three pillars for uh, non-surgical medical management of osteoarthritis. I think the three pillars that I think of are that the first thing we have to do is reduce pain. Mm -hmm. So these dogs or cats, um, or humans, or horse, whatever you like. And pain is a feature. Pain is a factor here. And I think managing pain, chronic pain, is a challenge in, in animal medicine. Um, and it's obviously a challenge in humans as well. It's a channel, challenge in, in all species. But reducing pain is, is, is the first pillar. The second thing we want to do is we want to improve mobility. Okay, mm -hmm. So if, if at all possible, we want to improve the quality and the quantity of, of the, the patient's mobility. Um, so we have strategies to do that. And the final thing we want to try and do is we want to try and protect the joint from becoming worse. So yeah. whatever we can do to, to put in, 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 in place some protective measures, if possible, to, to stop the joint from becoming worse. Mm -hmm. Um, and those are the kind of the three pillars that I look at. Mm -hmm. Um, and each of them are very important and each of them need different management strategies to, to do it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, let's jump into each of the pillars and um, if you can share some more details about your approach to each one, that yeah, would be great. Yeah, okay. So, I go from the, I sort of starting a little bit with protecting the joint from further progression. So, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll come back to it, but I think it's a, it's a useful starting point because in dogs and, and I'm guessing in humans to a large degree as well, um, a lot of the time there are reasons why the joint has become arthritic, okay? Uh, spontaneous arthritis or in dogs is, is, is pretty rare, if not unheard of. So most of the time, there's a reason why this joint has become arthritic. Classic example is, you know, the dog ruptures his cruciate ligament in its knee or mm. the dog's got hip dysplasia or the dog's got elbow dysplasia. So underlying the osteoarthritis, something has triggered the osteoarthritis process. So um, in the case of the knee, for example, the most common causes you'd be aware of, Sarah, in the dog would be um, cruciate ligament disease. Mm -hmm. It's the most common orthopedic disease we see in dogs. So, yeah. And there's a, a huge amount of, of work that's been done over many, many decades on cruciate ligament disease in dogs. But 
Um, fundamentally, when the cruciate ligament fails in the dog, the, the knee becomes mechanically unstable. Unlike in people where they often acutely rupture their cruciate ligament in dogs, it's more a, it's often uh, more of a long-term degenerative mm-hmm. change in the ligament and it deteriorates over time and it, it, it initiates a process of osteoarthritis that can be years in the making in dogs. So it's not very often or less commonly in dogs a acute traumatic rupture of the ligament. So they're mm. not out playing football when it happens. It's mm-hmm. just a slow, insidious burn. Yeah. And the cruciate ligament fails over time. So once it once it fails, it becomes the joint becomes mechanically altered. Okay. And mm-hmm. I think that we have now in dogs um, some very very good techniques for altering the mechanics of the dog's knee to normalize the mechanics or at least make the mechanics more functional. Mm-hmm. And so once the cruciate ligaments fail, the, the replacement techniques for cruciate ligaments in dogs aren't, aren't particularly effective or aren't. We haven't really worked out a way to replace the cruciate ligament particularly effectively in dogs. Mm-hmm. So we've resorted to mechanically changing the knee um, to enable the knee to become more functional without without a cruciate ligament being in place. So I think what I'm getting to with that is, is if there is a mechanical reason why the, why the joint is becoming arthritic, for example, the cruciate ligament is failing, or in an elbow joint you've got a, a, a piece of bone like the coronoid process of the elbow which is fractured or, mm-hmm. or, or broken away, and that piece of bone is causing damage to the joint surface or is causing mechanical damage to the joint surface, then I feel that treating that underlying mechanical problem is really, really important yeah, because if you, can, if you can stop the mecha- abnormal mechanics and restore some sort of functional mechanics to the knee or the elbow or wherever joint you're treating, then you've got a, you've got a, a much better chance of managing the osteoarthritis in the long term. Mm. So I think first and foremost, you look at what disease process you're dealing with and why it happens. So if there's a um, a cruciate ligament problem in the knee or you've got uh, elbow dysplasia or you've got osteochondrosis or something like that mm-hmm. that is triggering the disease process. Whatever you can do to to remedy that, and in the case of the knee, would be doing something like a plateau leveling surgery, which mm-hmm. is commonly done in dogs around the world. And I think starting with that is, is to, to normalise as best you can and often, you know, we don't restore it to absolute n- normality, but... Just restore mechanics to the to the joint as effectively as we can at this stage with our knowledge um, is a starting point. Mm. So that helps to mitigate future progression to a large degree yep. in many cases. So yep. that's a starting point. So first thing is try and restore mechanics if you can uh, and whatever joint you're dealing with or, or, or removing that instigating process. Yep. So the second thing would be, um, this, and the second pillar, I guess, if you have a dog with already advanced or a patient with advanced osteoarthritis or that is really painful, then you need to look at trying to treat pain. Yeah. Um, now, in humans and animals, there is a raft of different pain medications that we use, um, and it's probably a bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about today to go through all of them. But the mainstay is still uh, the anti-inflammatory or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, they still form the foundation for much of the uh, pain management in dogs and in people, I understand as well. Yeah, uh, and they're and they're very. And look, to be honest, in ma- vast majority of cases, they're safe, they're effective. Um, we've come a long way in understanding the enzymatic and uh, pathways uh, that that inflammation um, takes and how to manage uh, how to manage uh, ma- the inflammation associated 
with arthritis that causes the pain, and I think non-steroidals are very effective, effective, very effective in targeting that a lot of the time. Yeah. So um, I think we can manage that pretty effectively with 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 good non-steroidal drugs. They come with some side effects. I think you've always got to be mindful of that, and especially in older patients. Uh, they may have kidney compromise or liver compromise or other problems, mm-hmm. metabolic problems. I don't think we've got to be a little bit careful. I think it's very important to monitor dogs on long-term anti-inflammatories to make sure that their that their uh, kidney function's good and that, and that their gut's not uh, having problems. So, yep. like in people, you've got to be careful with them. But so I use those as certainly a, a starting point if the dog is in pain. Yeah. Um, or the cat to some degree. The other thing is now we're certainly starting to use a lot more drugs for chronic pain management, um, and I think that we've come a long way in, you know, the, the days when I first graduated, we really had only one or two drugs for managing dogs with painful osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. but I think to nowadays we actually have a, a lot better arsenal of drugs, and certainly veterinarians are... Uh, able to prescribe a lot of and a lot of these drugs that come from human man, uh, from human pain management uh, we're finding that they have they have uh, uh, ability to be used in dogs and to some degree cats as well so I think we have some options available and drugs that I tend to to look at um, for chronic pain management that is for dogs and cats that that have osteoarthritic pain, which is which is chronic, um, are drugs like gabapentin. Yep. Um, and I use that a reasonable amount. I use drugs like amantadine. Uh, and these are drugs that often are used for the basis for them often came from, from neuropathic pain or, um, or neurological pain. Mm-hmm. But I think that they are quite useful drugs um, in many instances. I use... Um, a little bit of, I, well, I don't use a little bit, I use a reasonable amount of paracetamol in dogs. Okay. Um, and that's sort of come into light in the last probably 10 years, um, five to 10 years. Obviously, you can't use paracetamol in cats. No. It's really, really, really important that you never give paracetamol to cats. Mm. Um, but certainly dogs, uh, I use it regularly uh, and it seems to, I feel it has a has a has an effect in managing dogs with chronic pain. It's relatively safe to use at at, at, at appropriate doses. Uh, and as I said, I use it in combination with drugs like nonsteroidals or gabapentin or things mm-hmm. like that. So I think there's a, a a range of drugs we can we can look at using. Okay. And what about if um, a patient was you know, they did have some sort of acute traumatic injury and they were very young, would you be hesitant to start them on the pharmaceuticals, you know, at the age of two or three? And Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, um, wanting to use that over the lifetime. My aim is to actually get the dogs, dogs off drugs. So I say yeah. the pain management is very important. Absolutely, it's very important. But my aim is actually to use other things to get the, the dogs off pain medication. I yeah, like them, sure. if okay. possible, off pain medication. Sometimes that's with surgery. Um, and but if surgery is not appropriate, what can we do to um, try and get them off medication that potentially has side effects? And that's, I think, where that kind of exciting part of rehabilitation or sports medicine is. Um, I think probably it would not be a discussion on osteoarthritis without talking about weight management. Yeah, of course. Um, this is something I'm incredibly passionate about, and the number of dogs and cats that I see battling weight and realistically there is so much evidence we have now that being overweight or being obese uh, not only 
causes or progression of osteoarthritis from a mechanical viewpoint. So if you're carrying around substantially more weight than you need to, uh, there's going to be mechanical overloading of your joints. That's a simple fact of physics. But there's so much more to it than that. So obesity or being overweight, the fat in your body is not a benign substance. It's mm. not an inert substance. We've um, There's many great researchers now looking at fat and what happens in the, to the body when you're overweight. And the fat is not a benign structure. It doesn't just sit there and do nothing. Um, it actually uh, isn't important in terms of the body's metabolism. There are lots of chemical reagents that are released, reactants that are released into the body from the fat uh, and these are things like adipokines and various other things that are being identified now. And these have a, a huge bearing on the body's metabolism. But not only that, they also have an impact on things like the joints. Hmm. So they've shown that, that overweight dogs and people have more problems with their osteoarthritis when they're overweight. So yeah, it's right. not just about mechanical loading. So, uh, for example, in, in people, they've shown that uh, in your hands and your digits, uh, which are not loaded mechanically, mm, no. if you're overweight, you have more problems with osteoarthritis in those joints. So Interesting. The, the, the obesity, the being overweight actually um, causes or adds to the progression of joint disease, not just through a mechanical process. Mm. Uh, so actually getting weight off a patient is not is not just important from a mechanical viewpoint. It's very important from a metabolic viewpoint. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I'm really, really passionate about with dogs uh, getting their weight down, and I actually go through the process of working out what the ideal body weight for the dog should be. Yeah. So working out how overweight it is, and I score the dog on a range of either one to five or one to nine yep. about how their body condition is. And body condition scoring is important because it gives you a starting point. Yeah. And then you work back and say, well, what's the ideal body weight for this dog? How many kilos do we need to lose? And therefore, we work towards how many calories does this dog need in a day to maintain itself but lose weight. Yeah. Uh, and I go through the process of working out what the dog diet the dog is on, and then working out exactly how many calories it needs and then feeding it accordingly to lose weight because weight is absolutely critical. And there's been some fantastic studies. In fact, some of the best studies done in veterinary medicine have been looking at dogs through the course of their lives and looking at what impact being overweight, what impact ad-lib feeding has on the joints at the end of their life. So Mm. these dogs are colony bred and looked and observed through the course of their entire life and given different diets, and those diets, and and they analysed at the end of the studies exactly what impact being overweight or or being on certain calorie density had on your joints. And they found quite conclusively that being overweight or or having too um, too much body fat actually contributed to the progression of joint disease. Uh, wow. It also contributed to life expectancy. Yeah. Uh, there's a huge, uh, huge ramifications of being overweight. And if we can reduce body weight in these dogs, and I say to people, look, it's it's a real, it's a, it's a win-win. You cannot lose by getting a dog to lose weight because, you know, we all know that people don't like spending money on their pets at vet hospitals. So if you can actually get your dog to lose weight, your dog will be healthier. There'll be less visits to the vet. You'll spend less money on treating osteoarthritis and other problems. Mm. Uh, and you'll also save money on dog food. So yeah. it's a win-win situation. Yeah. And the lovely thing about treating dogs that are overweight is that 
is that unlike humans, the dog can't go to McDonald's and buy yeah. food. The dog can't go to Woolworths or Coles and, and buy a whole heap of groceries and then and then pick out on chips in front of the TV. Yeah. The owner, the, the manager, whoever's looking after the dog uh, is in complete control of that dog's diet. Yeah. So the dog can't can't go to the cupboard and get food out yeah. although my dog tries to do that. <laughs> um, but if you shut the cupboard, they can't get in. Yeah. So you are in complete control as a dog's owner yeah. and therefore it is so important that you, you the owner is on board with the situation yeah. um, and that they are not only making their dog happier and more mobile but they're improving its quality of life, lessening the risk of osteoarthritis. Uh, and simply doing that through saving themselves money by by not purchasing as much dog food. Yeah. Uh, so it's working out what the dog needs, its calories, and, and look, there's a lot of there's a lot of information about dogs' diets, and there's a lot of people who are very passionate about what dogs eat, whether it's raw food, cooked food, um, natural food, uh, organic food, mm-hmm. you know, commercial food, yeah. blah de blah blah. I look to be honest, I'd have no affiliations with the dog pet food industry. I actually don't think it really matters, you know, as long as your dog is on a balanced diet. It really doesn't matter what brand or whether it's organic or not or whether it's raw or not or whether it's cooked or not. Uh, I'm more passionate about the the fact that, you know, you're feeding your dog too much hmm. uh, and actually cutting back on it. It's usually not the quality of the food that the owner's feeding. It's just simply the quantity. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I think that it's it's very important to get the balance right and to make sure that they're getting uh, the right level of calorie density, otherwise they'll be overweight. And that's absolutely critically important. So before I do anything to treat a dog surgically or otherwise, I say to people, look, we, we can't go through this process unless you're willing to put your dog on a diet and get it to lose weight because yeah. I can do all the magnificent surgery in the world. I can take a joint out and replace it or I can do a plateau levelling surgery or I can treat your dog's elbow dysplasia, but we're not going to win unless your dog loses, you know, this amount of weight. Yeah. And so I'm very upfront with people about that. It is by far and away the critically most important thing that people do to manage arthritis in their dog. Obviously, for a dog that has an acute injury and it's waiting for surgery or has advanced arthritis, um, how do you sort of tackle the exercise part yeah, of weight exercise management? exercise is, is really important. And I think this is where your rehabilitation and your strategies come in and, a lot of these dogs aren't as mobile as they once were and yeah. then obviously not exercising as much as they were. And then people often say that, but I can't walk the dog anymore. Yeah. I can't do this, I can't do that. So that's where it comes into working out. First of all, diet is so important, mm-hmm. you know, as I said. Uh, it's all very well to say that the dog can't exercise anymore. Well, that means we just need to tailor the diet even more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so diet is absolutely number one. Exercise is is important um, uh, and trying to get the dog mobile again. So. What I do is work out strategies for exercise that the owner can do and that the dog can do. Um, And it's all about treating the pain. So if you can get the dog a little bit more mobile, that's great. Uh, So pain management comes into that, but also tailoring an exercise program that the patient can manage effectively. Now, at SASH and a lot of other rehabilitation hospitals, that includes things like hydrotherapy um, and it includes things like physiotherapy to improve joint range of motion, to use some uh, things like therapeutic laser and other techniques to mitigate pain Mm -hmm. uh, around the joint and just to improve the dog's mobility even a little bit so they can do a little bit more. Uh, And that will start the whole process. So I think that you can always exercise a patient or almost always exercise a patient 
Um, it's just a, a question of, of, of how you do it. So using non or light impact activity, hydrotherapy, uh, swimming is good for losing weight, yep. um, but it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's an effective rehabilitation strategy but needs to be used um, wisely. Um, yeah. uh, it's very good for, for exercising to lose weight. Um, but in terms of controlled exercise, I like a hydrotherapy system where you can actually get a dog into a, a, a water treadmill yeah. that can not only um, help to exercise it, but also you can do controlled activity that can strengthen condition the patient as well. So strategies like that are, are really helpful. Yeah. So we can always tailor a program for dogs to exercise them. Um, it's just a case of how we manage that and what the owners can manage. Yeah. Uh, but I can usually talk to owners about uh, what sort of exercise they can do. Uh, and I think that most patients, a little bit of exercise is absolutely critically important. It's just a question of how we tailor that. And do you use any other or do you ever sort of recommend any other um, treatments such as you mentioned laser therapy? Is there any places in Sydney or in Australia doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy or do you recommend things like acupuncture and those yeah, sort of things? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't have a lot of, I don't have any experience with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I um, understand it's certainly something that people are looking at. Uh, acupuncture, I, I also think I don't have a lot of experience with it, but there's no doubt that um, there's some animals and people that certainly benefit from acupuncture mm. and with a, you know, with a, a good uh, experienced practitioner, then I'm sure that, that, there, are, that there are results that, that are positive with that. We don't use it routinely, um, but I know... Um, certainly there are veterinarians who do and, and get great results yeah, with it. Uh, yep. I just don't have a lot of experience with it. Yeah. Um, but we do use therapeutic laser um, and I think that, that that certainly helps animals from a pain management viewpoint. Um, and it's, again, part of the strategy we use or our physiotherapy team uses to help improve range of motion in the joints, improve the joint function uh, and ju- improve comfortable joint function to enable the dog or the cat to move more freely therefore exercise more, then we can get them in the hydrotherapy programs and also in conjunction with weight loss and other, other yeah. therapies. Just um, the cascade. It works together, absolutely. So this is it's a multimodal program. I think if you just try and do one thing, it won't work. Yeah. You've, got to, you've really got to tailor a program that's that's individualised and can be um, and, and, and can be, it's practical for the owners to do. Yeah. Um, yep. So that's really important. I just had a question I actually don't really know how therapeutic laser works. <laughs> I just suddenly realised. Are you able to explain to me how it actually works to relieve pain? Yeah, so lasers are really clever. It, it, it's, it's using specific wavelengths of light um, and the wavelengths uh, target particular uh, structures within the cell uh, and those structures uh, regulate energy pathways, it upregulates those energy pathways, uh, and therefore it can alter cell metabolism. And by doing mm, so, it can okay. accelerate healing. Okay. Um, and also, it can modulate um, nerve impulses, it can it modulate uh, myofibers and, and things. So you're targeting various different things like the nerves, you're, you're targeting healing cells. So often we use it therapeutically for healing tissues. Um, but specifically for pain, it's going to modulate nerve pathways around the uh, area that is painful, and that will help alleviate some of the discomfort. Mm, okay. So I think it, it certainly has a, a role to play yeah. in uh, in pain management. 
Um, uh, there's certainly some evidence, emerging evidence of, of its use in, in tissue healing. We use it in, in tendinopathies or musculoskeletal injury. Yep. Um, yep. And as I said, I, I, I certainly think from a pain management viewpoint um, that it's very helpful as well. And can people actually purchase a laser and learn how to do it themselves at home or is this has to be done in a clinic setting? Well, I think in theory you probably could. Um, the difficulty is it's, it's like any of these things uh, – it, it it needs to be done by someone who's practiced and can adjust it and can tailor it to the to the individual. Yeah. Um, the laser you do have to be a little bit careful. You have to the types of lasers we're using. You have to use protective eyewear to make sure that you don't damage your eyes yeah. when you're using it because it is a particularly targeted light source. Um, so there are uh, a, you know there's a lot of veterinarians who are experienced in using it. I think it needs to be used strategically. Um, and it needs to be used to target because you've really got to target specific tissues. Yeah. So if you don't really know what tissue you're targeting, then it's kind of hard to kind of hard to use it. Yeah. Of um, but if you if you're able to get a practitioner to who's experienced, it's not generally very expensive. Um, it, it's used as an outpatient. The do- the patient comes in and goes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, and then some of these lasers are also extraordinarily expensive. Mm. So you're better off you. You know, saving your money, yeah, going course. to the practitioner yeah. for however long you needed it treated for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that would be my advice. Yeah, sure. And um, talking about multimodal management of arthritis, does any sort of supplementation come into your plans? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, supplements are a really important part of what I, I do with osteoarthritis management. Um, and there are a number of supplements that I recommend. Look, you, you, the reality is if you go to the literature, you can find a million different supplements for managing osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have reasonable evidence associated with them. Some of them um, have questionable evidence mm. associated with them. There are a whole heap of pretty comprehensive human reviews on on different supplements for osteoarthritis. Yeah. Um, look, the traditional ones are things like glucosamine and chondroitin, which are a Aminosaccharides that are substrates for the yep. for um, the, the synthesis of, of, of cartilage, uh, and they're supplements that many people take. Um, there's certainly been some meta-analyses done that have questioned whether they have a, a great deal of therapeutic use in treating, you know, osteoarthritis that um, is pre-existing. And, mm. and I don't. I, I guess I, I look at those with a um, with a with a view that probably. Uh, they're, they're less important the scale of, of treating osteoarthritis mm-hmm. that is in situ. But having said that, I think from a preventative viewpoint, I think that there is some there are some studies looking at using glucosamine and chondroitin preventively, um, preemptively in, mm. in osteoarthritis. So, for example, in sporting or athletic dogs, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to to place dogs yep. on on those things to prevent osteoarthritis, help prevent osteoarthritis. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's lots of lots of information on the use of um, fatty acids, omega three yep. fatty acids particularly, and they are things that I do recommend people go on to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's been some some questions about using omega three fatty acid supplementation in humans for degenerative osteoarthritis as opposed to in inflammatory diseases like yep. rheumatoid arthritis. Yep. Uh, but I think in dogs, look, there is some pretty good evidence. 
um, that omega-3 fatty acid supplementation is beneficial in dogs for yep. osteoarthritis. Yeah. And certainly in my own experience, we're, we're treating a lot of dogs with osteoarthritis. You know, this is anecdotal and, 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 and based on my own observations rather than anything else. I think there's certainly, um, in my view, there are some animals that are better off on omega-3s than off omega-3s for treating their osteoarthritis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I guess the ones that I go to are – uh, the good quality uh, fish oils mm-hmm. um, that are dense in, in omega-3, DHA, EPA being the critical omega-3s that are essential for the management of osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important to get the concentration right. Mm. I think that the big mistake people make is not getting the correct balance or or, or, or um a volume of, of DHA and EPA. Yep. Um, they're the critical omega-3s that you're after. And it's often good to get your veterinarian or practitioner to actually work out or calculate the the correct amount of DHA and EPA for that particular patient. It's going to vary according to weight. Yep. It is a high amount, so you do have to yeah. be a little bit careful of how high you're going with the DHA EPA because you do have to give a lot of um, a lot of uh, omega three to get to that level. Yeah, like um, people but, as well. Yeah, correct. So I think that's important. The other thing I use and and like is green lip muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, I do um, – there's actually a recent review that came out looking at the veterinary trials for and future research directions for mm-hmm. for green lip muscle as a, as a supplement, and I think there's certainly some good evidence in dogs that green lip muscle um, is, is, is beneficial in the treatment of osteoarthritis mm. by field. Yep. Um, and so that's something that, I, that, I'm, that I'm keen about. Um, there's lots of other different, different products. Uh, things like you know rosehip, uh, avocado, soboy- mm. soybean, um, unsuponifiables. Mm-hmm. There's um, uh, no, no, there's, the, there's the interesting curcumin and mm-hmm. and turmeric and various other things. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't use them as routinely. I think again, you've got to be very careful about the quality yes. of the product that you're giving. I think one some there's some studies looking at the different formulations of different things. Um, and it is very, very because these are poorly regulated. Um, I think it's 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 actually there's a huge variability yeah. in quality. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing that, that people need to be aware of that yeah. uh, they may be wasting their money with some things, not because it doesn't work, but just because the quality of the ingredients it's not absorbed. That they use yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh well, that was a really great overview of. Um, you know, a nice holistic approach to managing arthritis. Um, but obviously we've talked about the importance of the client um, or the, the pet's owner being really on board. Um, how do you sort of get them to adhere to your plan and encourage them when, when you know, a lot of these things, apart from using a pharmaceutical, but a lot of these other approaches do take time to see yeah, results. So yeah. how do you sort of manage their expectations and really um, get them on board? Yeah, it's, it is challenging because, I mean, we're, we're pretty poor at looking after ourselves, let alone yeah. looking after our pets at Particularly times, vets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, you know, and we all have, you know, limitations in our time. So yeah. um, I think that, as I said, I, I come back to that you've got to work with a client, work within what's achievable. Uh, mm. I think that it's very the, – the simple things are easy, you know, feeding a dog the correct amount of food, mm-hmm. um, getting its weight correct. I mean, that's something that you, you, you do very simply. Saves yeah. you money. It's it's better beneficial for your animal. So yep. getting the right diet and 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 weight 
is is absolutely critical. It doesn't yep. take any time. You're just regulating how much they eat. Yeah. Um, likewise, I think that using an appropriate supplement is 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 a good idea. Um, and that's very simple and easy to do. Now, whether it's integrated into the diet, there are there are products that, that have omega-3s already built into the diet or mm-hmm. whether you add a supplement to the mm-hmm. diet is entirely up to the individual. And yep. Some people like to do it one way, some people like to do it the other way. So yep. they're very quick and easy to do. You don't need to spend a huge amount on it, and I think that you can uh, achieve good results mm-hmm. um, with that. Um, the, the things like physical therapy, rehabilitation therapy, as I said, once you've got a plan sort of set out, a lot of the time it's just like going to the gym or or uh, taking your dog for a walk. You're just modifying that a little bit and getting a program that's, that's right for your dog and right for your lifestyle. Um, if you can come in and get regular treatments done, it's like going to the physio or, or going to the gym, as I said, you can do that for your dog as well and, and has the, the benefits for your dog. And bearing in mind that dogs live 10 or 15 years um, and and that regular exercise or regular activity or regular, um, particularly as they get older and they get more arthritic, that actually getting therapies done regularly is, is going to be beneficial and improve their quality of life and they're going to live longer. Mm. So I think that people are people are committed to their to their pets, uh, and the pet becomes part of the family, and and we all know how important it is integrated into the family, uh, and and it, it just becomes a, a, a a, an opportunity for you to do some and the, the other thing is an opportunity for you to bond with your pet a little bit too because yeah. it's fun it's enjoyable and the pet actually instead of going to the vet for a negative experience as they often do they're actually going for a, a therapeutic that experience that, yeah. that, that feels good and, yeah. and it's interesting you know when i when i get patients coming to me to see me for a surgical procedure they don't know particularly that keen to come in and see me but i'll tell you when when they come in to see our rehab team they bounce <laughs> in the door off and they love it you know the dog really enjoys yeah. it it makes them feel better it's like going to the gym you come out feeling yeah well you know you, you you're stronger you're fitter makes you feel good and i'm no doubt that it has that same effect on yeah. dogs as well yeah so it's very beneficial to them and we all want to see our, our our pets happier and healthier so yeah oh that's great well i feel sorry for you that you have to get the <laughs> the, yeah. the, ne- the negative dogs yeah, and yeah, you yeah, don't get the it. pleasure of seeing them all happy to yeah, see yeah. you yeah. <laughs> um well i know that you're um very busy today so i will i will wrap this up in the next few minutes but is there any sure. last um sort of tips or secrets that you want to share with our practitioners who are listening about Sort yeah, of managing cool. arthritis. Yeah, I, I think I've covered the key things. Yeah. Um, but um, I think the exciting area is where we talk about things like regenerative medicine mm. and what roles they're going to play in the future. And while I very uh, cognizant of the fact there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this sphere, it's, a, it's something I've, I've watched with interest over the last decade of how it's emerged. And um, regenerative medicine, I think, is something that we should all be very excited about and it's great opportunities for treating these chronic diseases. Um, and while they're not a, necessarily a cure for these diseases, I think that um, they offer an opportunity to help manage them. Um, and I think things like platelet-rich plasma, mm, stem cell therapy, yeah. um, these types of treatments are becoming more accessible. I think, as I said, there's a lot of work needs to be done on on fine-tuning exactly how we use them, when to use them, what concentrations and how to prepare them. Uh, all those sorts of things need to be looked at, and certainly we need greater evidence in a clinical uh, setting of how to use them. Mm. Uh, and certainly in the experimental world, um, with uh, looking at these regenerative medicine therapies, there's certainly some strong evidence to suggest that they do have uh, effects on the joint, on cartilage, on 
on bone. Uh, they can affect healing. They can affect inflammatory processes. They can affect pain. Uh, and it's just a case of, all right, how do we take it out of the lab and put it into a, a clinical setting that, that's mm. going to be reproducible and give and give patients meaningful results. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the work that needs to be done. And certainly it's being done, and I think there's some emerging evidence of of, um, of techniques that we can use, and we're starting to use it a lot more. Uh, the other thing that, that we're looking for osteoarthritis is things like joint resurfacing. We're actually taking cartilage grafts and various other uh, synthetics to actually resurface areas of the joint. Wow. Which instead of replacing the whole joint, we just replace part of the joint, replace yep. the weight-bearing surfaces. Um, so that's an exciting area too. So I think, yeah. you know, the, the world of autobiologics, uh, regenerative medicine, cartilage resurfacing um, and uh, is kind of the, the next the next uh, pathway that we're going to go down in managing osteoarthritis. Wow. And while we don't necessarily have cures for osteoarthritis, we can't stop the process. We can certainly do a hell of a lot to manage the process. Mm. And uh, I think that's where the exciting exciting future is going to head. So yeah. we're, we're excited about it. And, and I think that um, the other thing is 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 uh, getting people aware of, of sports medicine rehabilitation services. Yeah. I think being a rehabilitation practitioner is very satisfying and you can really make meaningful differences for these patients. Uh, and it's not just a case about giving it a tablet anymore. It's, a, it's, it's about managing its whole life, its lifestyle, um, and giving it therapies that are that are that are really non-invasive, that mm. are very effective. And can improve the quality of life. Yeah. So, um, so I'm doing myself out of a job as a surgeon, but, um, <laughs> but no. at the end of the day, if if it benefits a patient, then absolutely, uh, it should be first and foremost. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's definitely some things in there that I hadn't heard of. Um, some of those emerging treatments. So it's a very exciting space to keep keep an eye on, and um, it sounds like you're really at the forefront of it. So so lucky to have you so close by in Sydney. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Um, well, I'll let you go, Steve, but Thank before you, you head off, are you able to share with our listeners um, where they can find out more about you and Sash and how they might get in contact with you if they want to, um, you know, come and see yeah, you yeah. or come and see the rehab team at Sash? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the Small Animal Specialist Hospital is, we're based at North Ride. Uh, we have a, a rehabilitation team here who works uh, five, six days a week. So mm-hmm. we're, we're working on patients from spinal patients right through to um, patients with 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 cancer or advanced osteoarthritis or various other musculoskeletal problems. So we we work with all sorts of patients in that sphere, um, and the team's really dedicated and really professional. So uh, yeah, the other we also have a practice up on the central coast of uh, north of Sydney at Tugra, okay. um, where I practice up there a couple of days a week, uh, servicing uh, you know the greater central coast, mid north coast, Hunter region, yep. uh, all that sort of area, Newcastle. So more than happy to see people up on the central coast uh but uh but also in sydney and dr naomi boyd myself and our rehab team work work down in sydney at north ride where we've got underwater treadmill therapeutic laser all those techniques we've talked about yeah. discussed diet and exercise patterns and, and programs to uh, to help patients rehabilitate or, or manage osteoarthritis so certainly a pleasure to see them we love it we're passionate about it um and more than happy to help people out whenever we can Oh, that sounds wonderful. And the passion absolutely exudes through the phone. So um, I'm sure, sure lots of people will be flocking to see. I guess we more than 24 hours in a day. <laughs> it would be nice if we could pack a bit more in. Yeah. 
Oh, well, I, I hope that um, you, you've only had a cup of tea today and you've done this amazing surgery and now spoken to me for an hour. So I hope you do have a little bit of time to grab a bite to eat at least because <laughs> you we need will. to you need we to will. look after yourself. Um, thank it. you so much for taking time to be a guest today on the podcast. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and I know a lot of people will get a lot out of this episode on um, managing arthritis and I've certainly um, sort of had my eyes open to your world and it sounds really exciting to be in. Terrific, Sarah. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about. Oh, pleasure. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great day, Steve. Thanks, Sarah. You too. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and this is the Pure Animal Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to jump onto iTunes and review and rate the podcast. 